Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Powell and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this action-packed episode, Steve discusses the classic buddy-buddy Chase Road movie Midnight Run, a perfect film for a Friday night deadline. Dan's pick is Vantage Point, a time-bending, media-driven conspiracy thriller which is guaranteed to find the right angle. Buckle up, dear listeners, and as always, beware the spoilers. Enjoy the show, and Steve, you might want to duck. Well, good evening, dear listener, and welcome to the second Highbrow Lowbrow of 2023. As we're recording this just before St. Valentine's Day, we've got a couple of romantic... Oh, don't be daft. This is Steve and myself. We've got a couple of action thrillers for you. I'm going to talk about Vantage Point later on, but first of all, Steve's going to kick us off with Steve. Midnight Run. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. And uh, my highbrow or relatively highbrow action film for for this episode is, is the 1988 action comedy classic Midnight Run. Now, this is a film that I love. It is a road movie, a chase movie, a buddy movie, but its production is far better than most action films, even in the 1980s heyday of the action film. So I'll start with the plot. Robert De Niro plays Jack Walsh, a bounty hunter who is working for a a bail bondsman played by Joe Pantoliano. And in the opening scene, we see Walsh's job, which is capturing a convict or an escaped felon. And it's a very dangerous profession. He's shot at He's almost killed. He manages to subdue the uh, person in question. But he has a rival, uh, a rival bounty hunter called Marvin, played by John Ashton. And these guys are arch enemies, basically. And this sets up a rivalry that runs throughout the film. So Joe Pantoliano says, I've got this big job for you. I can pay you a huge salary potentially if you recover an accountant who has gone missing the accountant is played by charles groden jonathan mardukas the duke as he's called throughout the film this accountant is basically a white collar criminal or he didn't even know he was a criminal but he found out he was working for a firm which was a mafia front and he embezzled 15 million dollars of mafia money and and gave it to charity he was uh, arrested in los angeles but he skipped bail and he's gone into hiding. Nobody knows where he is. He embezzled the money from a Chicago mob boss called Jimmy Serrano, played by the wonderful Dennis Farina. And Serrano and Jack Walsh have history because Walsh's backstory is that he was a Chicago cop. And Walsh is the most honest, you know, by the book cop you can imagine. But way back when, the Chicago Police Department was entirely in the pocket of Jimmy Serrano. And Walsh was drummed out of the police department. He lost his marriage. He lost this right to see his daughter. And he ended up down on his luck. And that's how he became a bounty hunter in L.A. Walsh says, I'll do this gig. I'll take the money as long as, long as it's um, a sizable amount of money because I want out of this industry. And 
if you can give me, I think it's a hundred grand he asked for, yes, $100,000, then that will give me enough money to open up a, a cafe, which is my dream. And I can get out of this business for good. And then um, Pazliano reluctantly agrees because the Duke's bail was so high, 450 grand, that if they don't get him back within five days, then Pantoliano defaults on the debt and he's put out of business. So he faces financial ruin. Essentially, then the film becomes a chase story because Jack Walsh is the best in the business. He soon finds the Duke living in New York with his wife. He captures him with relative ease and he thinks he's going to get him back to L.A. easily within the five days that's needed. Things start to get a bit complicated because the Duke can't fly. He's got a morbid fear of flying. Jack Walsh tries to get him on the plane, but he can't. So he has to take a train. And of course, a train across the you know continental United States is a, is a long journey. So you're, you're buckling up for a long journey together. And part of the appeal is the rapport between Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro as actors, because they cannot stand each other. They're completely different characters. You know, Robert De Niro is very much a street cop. He's a tough, hard-boiled, uh, laconic guy, whereas Grodin is this kind of, you know, stuffy, nebbish accountant, a moralist, and just very, very different characters. And But it's one of those cases where, you know, the chemistry is just perfect. But they soon find out they're being chased, one by the FBI, an FBI officer, uh, Alonzo Mosley, played by Yefik Koto, had warned Walsh off trying to find the Duke. He said, this is an FBI case, stay away from him. Okay, so the FBI are after them. And of course, Jimmy Serrano's after them because he's terrified that if the Duke goes into custody, he'll cut a deal with the FBI in exchange for immunity, then um, he, he could testify against Jimmy Serrano and put Jimmy Serrano in federal prison. So Jimmy Serrano sends two of his mob wise guys after Walsh and the Duke. Also, back in LA, Pantoliano is getting increasingly agitated because he thought the Duke was coming back very quickly and now he starts to worry they're not going to get back in time. So he sends Marvin out to prize the Duke out of Walsh's hands. He, he pits them against each other. So really, it's they're being chased by three people, a, a rival bounty hunter, the, the mob, and the FBI. It kind of evolves into a kind of planes, trains, and automobiles story because suddenly they can't take the train, they've got to get a bus, suddenly they're out of cash. Turns out that the Duke was faking his fear of flying, turns out he's a pilot, he tries to get away in a, in a stolen plane. There's numerous set pieces which are just wonderful and, and very, very comic. It soon be, becomes a race against time, the, the life is constantly in danger. There are some quite suspenseful set pieces, there's some terrific car chases, but all, all in all, it's a fairly light piece. But it has moments of great emotional integrity, perhaps is one way you could call it. There's one very moving scene where they're near Chicago, where Walsh's ex-wife lives, and now she's married another cop who happens to be in the pocket of Jimmy Serrano. And he goes around, he has to beg her for cash just to try and stay alive and stay on the road and stay on the run. And they have this flaming argument, and then suddenly his daughter walks in the room, and she's a young teenage girl. And she comes across as a, a lovely girl, a bit pensive, a bit fragile. She hasn't, she hasn't seen a father for so long. And uh, they have this really profound moment. Not much is said, but you can tell the love and the loss between them. Also, the relationship between Walsh and the Duke becomes quite moving in itself. It starts with a heck of a lot of bickering. 
But it's one of those relationships where they go through so much that they do develop a bond. The Duke plays on Walsh's guilt because Walsh is legally obligated to drop the Duke off at uh, Los Angeles County Jail or somewhere like that. And the Duke knows that he'd be killed in jail. And he's he's adamant that I will certainly be murdered before I get to the protection of any uh, federal officers. Because Walsh can't just hand him over to the FBI, because if he did that, then uh, the Duke would still default on the bail and he wouldn't get paid. So the Duke is saying, look, look you're basically murdering me. You're murdering me for $100,000. And it gets quite tense, but it also gets, you know, quite profound between them. So it's an action film, but believe it or not, very few people get killed. The violence is well handled. It's realistic, but it's not gratuitous in any way. The climax of the film in an airport is wonderfully tense, but again, there's no shooting, no, no one gets killed, but, you know, it's real edge-of-the-seat tension. And I really think it was probably the best action film of the 80s, Buddy-buddy movies are usually horribly cliched. This one feels different. This one feels like there's a real friendship at stake or a friendship that grows eventually. Action comedies can be quite difficult, but this one, I feel, really pays it off. The, the car chases aren't, you know, overdrawn. It doesn't get too smoky in the band. It doesn't get too much smashing and crashing. They seem to go on just as long as they need to. I highly recommend it to you. It's a film I've revisited many times. So do the many people who love this film. They, they keep coming back to it. It's, it's highly watchable again and again. It's, it's very joyful. There aren't many films that make you feel really, really glad to be alive. Believe it or not, this is one of them. I mean, more so than, say, It's a Wonderful Life or any other heartwarmers. There's something about this film that really just makes me happy to be alive. So I'll talk a little bit about the production. It was an unusual choice for De Niro at the time because he was the undisputed greatest film actor alive. I mean, Brando was still alive and Burt Lancaster and maybe a couple of others, but they practically retired. De Niro was the greatest uh, living actor working on film. But he apparently felt that after too many gangster films he wanted to do something lighter he wanted to try comedy he'd been in negotiations to star in big to play the tom hanks role of the, of the child who kind of supernaturally becomes an adult but maintains a child's mentality that would have been really interesting but that fell through and obviously tom hanks took the part and if you're a barry norman fan if you're a fan of the film show there's an interesting moment where barry norman was interviewing robert de niro it's probably on youtube and Barry Norman had the temerity in De Niro's eyes to ask about this, just as if to say, why did you lose out on that role on Big? Uh, and De Niro did not take it kindly at all. It's a very tense moment. And apparently after the camera stopped, De, De Niro was very close to punching Barry Norman, who was about to get very nasty, but he stomped off before it resolved to uh, fisticuffs. But anyway, De Niro wanted to do comedy and... There's a script knocking about by a screenwriter called George Gallo, who teamed up with the director, Martin Brest, and they worked on the screenplay. It started off with one production company. It started off uh, with Paramount Pictures, but it ended up at Universal Studios because when auditioning the role of the Duke, Martin Brest felt that Charles Grodin was the only person who could stand up to De Niro. And when you watch the film, you see it. You see it. These two guys go head to head. And now I just gave you that story. I mean, we know De Niro is one of the great tough guy film actors. He's done goodness knows how many gangster films or how many cop films. And he is a genuine tough guy. And I just told you how he nearly uh, decked <laughs> Barry Norman. <laughs> but Grodin, in their scenes together, he is not afraid to give as good as he gets. I think that's vital for their chemistry. And I think De Niro really respected him for that. 
And production-wise, it was pretty much filmed in sequence as they moved from east to west, from New York to LA over the, over the, over the five days of the story. So they're filming in a lot of small towns or, or villages or kind of dust bowl type places. And frankly, you wouldn't see this in a production today. It would all be the studio lot faking some small town. It would it would be CGI to do these things. But, you know, they were, they were filming across country, apart from one Whitewater Rapids scene, which they had to film in New Zealand, because the Whitewater Rapids of Arizona, which it was set, were considered, you know, too cold, too dangerous. There is a wonderful score by Danny Elfman. And Elfman had worked with Martin Brass before on a low-budget independent film called Hot Tomorrows. So they had a good rapport. And this soundtrack is just much loved. It's on YouTube. I, I suggest you check it out. For the chase sequences and the violent sequences, there's a lot of electric guitar and a lot of... It's a very pleasurable soundtrack. It's like, yeah, we're getting back to the, one of the good bits now. You know, it gets fast. It gets exciting. But it also works in things like country and western and that sort of thing to show that they're in these small places that where there's only one phone for the whole place or there's only you know, one bus out every day and they're just trapped in these kind of desert towns and stuff. So it, it has a kind of rustic feel at times. And then suddenly the guitar kicks in and the full band kicks in and it gets rocky and electric. And, and it's just a fantastic score. I want to say a little bit about Martin Brest because he, he's a very interesting character in, in Hollywood. His first major film was Going in Style which was 1981, I believe. And I saw it many years ago when George Burns plays one of three old men who decide that retirement is boring and decide to rob a bank. And I thought it was quite a good charmer when I saw it. Uh, it's one of those films that made a serious point about how lonely aging could be. It was recently remade with Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman. And I don't think that remake did very well. Martin Brest is one of these guys who... Career starts interesting, gets better, peaks with, I think, Midnight Run, starts to decline slowly, and then suddenly it completely imploded and he hasn't made a film in 20 years. So the, the story with Brest is, after going in style, he had a major hit with Beverly Hills Cop, uh, which I think is a marvellous action comedy. It's the first and easily the best of the series with Eddie Murphy. He had something of a reputation in Hollywood for being difficult to work with, though, because he was hired to direct the film War Games and immediately started rewriting the script and he wanted to make a serious political thriller and he was sacked after 12 days because... The studio execs thought the rushes is like, apparently they thought no one's having a good time. We want a comedy. So he was stuck from that film. Some of his scenes apparently remain in the film. And then he peaks with Midnight Run, but he was a ardent perfectionist. And his style of working was to do take after take after take, almost like Stanley Kubrick, you know, just like 100 takes per scene. This made it very difficult for the cast. It's difficult enough as it is to just go across country and stop in these small towns where there's not many amenities. But a lot of the cast were going completely spare. But he was also making it difficult for himself because he actually, it's only customary to print one or two takes of the ones you like. But he would insist that all the takes would be printed. His justification was, he's like, when you're working with De Niro, even in a bad take, he might give you just some sort of twitch or, you know, facial tick or something that you want to keep. But apparently, Brest had a very bad working relationship with Yafik Koto, who got very ill during the shoot because he was so stressed out about all of the takes that were being done and how slow everything was. The downside of doing so many takes is it takes ages to get anything done. 
and he got ill and Koto also said that Modern Brass made himself ill that like he stopped eating and got thinner and thinner and more emaciated as the film went on De Niro is one of the great method actors and what Modern Brass has said is that on the shoot De Niro wouldn't go inside you know they'd be in some small town and there's a lot of out- outdoor shots it's almost entirely outdoors actually you know it's a road movie so they'd say to De Niro do you want to just go in the dine that we've set things up for you to sit down and just between takes and De Niro wouldn't go inside and he said he later realized that De Niro wanted to wear himself down he wanted to appear more and more tired and exhausted as, as his character would be because of shooting the sequence there was a brave move and, and De Niro's part is in its own way it's every bit as amazing as all that massive weight gain he put on to for the role of uh, Raging Bull this film was a box office and critical smash really and then Modern Breast went on his next film was another big success Sent to the Woman but you know that's when I started to lose interest I saw Sent to the Woman and I thought it was a bit schmaltzy too long I didn't really it, like it uh, and, and a lot of people do a lot of people love it and Al Pacino won, won the Oscar for it for playing a blind man then Modern Breast made Meet Joe Black which I didn't see but it, it I think it really divided people I think his films are kind of getting smaltier and more indulgent I mean it had its admirers but I mean my better half saw it and she hated it she said oh it's horribly overblown then his final film was Jiggly the infamous Jennifer Lopez Ben Affleck uh, flop often on lists of worst films ever made. I think there are one or two people who are prepared to defend it, but it had everything, you know, it was very kind of on PC because I think Jayla's supposed to be a lesbian in it and Affleck cures her, so to speak. You know, it's it's very, very uncouth sexual politics that, that, that don't sit well today. And it was such a disaster that Modern Breast hasn't made a film since. I believe that his working style was so meticulous that he made a lot of enemies in the studios when he was making successful films. He was hacking people off. So when he finally makes a film that is not a success, in fact, it's a massive flop, and it was even credited as breaking up Jennifer Lopez and, and Ben Affleck, who were a famous benefit couple at the time, then his enemies were ready to pounce, and he hasn't worked again. Like, he took the fall for Jiggly. But, you know, I'm very much of the mind, forgive and forget, and, hey, J-Lo and Ben Affleck got back together. If that can happen, why can't we have another film from Martin Brast? I mean, I'd go see it. I'd happily see anything he does. To get back to a happier subject, I think Midnight Run is, is the best film he's ever done because his previous action comedy, Beverly Hills Cop, is, is great, but it's kind of forgettable. It entertains you, but when it's over, you, you it doesn't really stick with you. Whereas this, I think the whole relationship between Grodin and De Niro sticks with you the chase sticks with you the fact that you're rooting for these guys that you they genuinely feel like they're in danger but it never loses its comedic edge it's just a marvelous production where all of the music and the acting and the direction and the script all seem to mold together perfectly and there was a lot of improvisation as well and I think they went with the best improvisation Breast included scenes where the actors thought they were off camera so, as, as I mentioned, Yafet Koto really wasn't enjoying working with Breast. And there's a moment where the airport scene where Koto thought he was off camera and was so frustrated, he says, this thing is going to give me a heart attack. I swear I'm going to have a heart attack. He didn't realise he was on camera and, and that scene made it into the film. But it's brilliant because his character would say that. His character is flustered and frustrated throughout the whole film. So I think it's just a stroke of genius to put it in. You know, I'm just going to end by saying... 
I recommend this film. If you haven't already seen it, go see it now. And I'm, I'm even going to go right out there and say it's the best action film of the 80s. So that's my choice, Midnight Run. Well, you're definitely putting it out there, Steve. Best action film of the 80s. Well, that will... Um... Well, I wanted I wanted to end on that to see if, you, see if you'd agree with me or if you think I'm just going over the top. Uh, it is good. I wouldn't say it's the best action film of the 80s. No, sorry. I disagree with you on that. But then... You know, um, it's a, one of the best action comedy films. I'll give you that one, action mm-hmm. comedy. But as we're supposed to add night action, I'm not sure. And I do prefer it to Beverly Hills Cop because one of Charles Grodin's strengths is that his comedy is so understated. De Niro and comedy aren't usually a natural mix. As you know, you need to look at his stuff like Bad Grandpa to see, or Dirty Grandpa, whatever it's called, yeah. to see how bad that is. But one of the scenes that did make me laugh because it's so understated is, you know, when he's trying to buy train tickets and his card has just been cancelled. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, the lady knows he's up to something and Charles Grodin isn't helping because he yeah. just kind of keeps giving the lady knowing looks, kind of saying, yeah, he's dodgy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when she says, that's not the name on your card, shall I call the FBI? And he's just like nodding, kind of, yeah, he's... He's, yeah. he's he's just bad, this guy. And the way he does subtly kind of undermine him uh, and, and also chip away at him, like with his family, saying you should go and see your family. Mm-hmm. And by wanting to be his accountant and everything, he never seems to switch off the accountancy thing. And talking of undermining, Yafet Koto's underlings have a yeah. nice habit of making him look bad. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. for example, when it's revealed that Robert De Niro's character used his ID, then they say, you know, in public, does this mean he has a, your ID? Something you don't need people to hear. It's amazing to watch, and you think it's only, what, 35 years ago. It's amazing to see how, how you could just smoke anywhere back then. They're just lighting up everywhere. That amused me. But it, I do love that ticket-buying scene where De Niro is so flustered. He's like, don't have any allu- illusions. He's like, Illusions, illusions. Don't have any uh, illusions. <laughs> yeah. Did you know how De Niro wanted Grodin to go method? No, not that. No. Okay, Grodin has permanent scars on his wrists from where he was wearing the handcuffs. He was offered plastic handcuffs at the time, but De Niro said encourage him to go method and wear steel handcuffs at all times. Mm-hmm. So of course they kind of left permanent scars on his wrists. So there you are. So I presumably, yeah. I think De Niro's feeling was, well, if I'm going to stand outside all the time, you can be wearing real handcuffs. I, I did read one story. It really made me laugh when I heard the line in the film. And then when I read up on the story behind it, is that the scene where they're in the, um, the train car, not the passenger train, the kind of livestock train. Yeah. De Niro's character is absolutely furious with the Duke because he's just attempted another escape. And the director said to Grodin, you've got to say something that gets his attention. And of course, De Niro's just completely stone-faced. He won't respond to him. And Grodin's trying all these lines. And then he suddenly says, have you ever had sex with an animal, Jack? You know, have you ever tried it on with a chicken? And it made De Niro laugh. So that was the take they went with. Yeah. He's just, he had to try out line after line just to get his attention. And then finally, the lines are getting funnier and more outrageous. And then finally, you know, De Niro just cracked. I really like that. But apparently, after he did it, they were like, you know, censorship was a bit more rigorous back then. It was like, that'll never make it. That'll never get past the censor. But but somehow it did. <laughs> well, I'm glad it did. Yeah. And like I say, I liked Broden's understated style of comedy. You know, he wasn't kind of out and out wacky. He just let the dialogue do the humour for him and just let his expressions convey the, the humorous aspect. I know, but it's one that I'd always meant, meant to watch. And then, you know, when I finally did get to see it, I did enjoy it. It's a shame that Martin Brest's career did 
feel so badly. I have seen Mitchell Black and it's long. It's far too long. It's about three hours. Yeah. And it is, I wouldn't say small, it's just far too long. Yeah. It has its good points, but it could do with some serious editing. And the Benefer fiasco, I have not seen. And I have no desire to see. When it's got lines like, uh, it's turkey time, gobble, gobble. I know. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, yeah. It, it's up there. It's title is like Ishtar or Heaven's Gate or Inchon. You know, that's how disastrous it is. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say as well, there's been talk of a remake for years, years and years. No, not a remake, actually, a sequel. Oh, Jiggly? No, of Midnight Run. Oh, Sorry. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. No, I think uh, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez's recent marriage is the only sequel you're going to get to Jiggly. Okay, thank you. Uh, but there, there was talk of a Midnight Run sequel for years. Robert De Niro had apparently agreed to come back, and Grodin wasn't going to come back because he retired... He passed away, I think, just last year, but he retired from acting around about the mid-90s to focus on his writing. So the idea was it'd be the Duke's son. Uh, Jack Walsh was the bounty hunter again, and somehow the Duke's son has got into trouble. But it didn't happen. There were some made-for-TV sequels with Christopher McDonald as Jack Walsh. Now, I haven't seen them. They were free, and they're known as the Midnight Run Action Pack. Uh, I was I was skimming through some of the reviews on IMDb and they were pretty mediocre. And I just think that to do this film, you actually need a good budget hmm. to to go from town to town. And I mean, I think Krista McDonald is, is a pretty decent actor, but you know, it's it's no De Niro. And I'm I'm glad in a way that it didn't become a franchise and uh, because it went to television instead, and, and not even particular television hits. Not really thought of as a franchise. It's just thought of as a film, like so. That was the time whenever they were trying to you do TV movies of successful films, weren't they? Like The Net 2.0 and things like that. Oh, one line that did, did make me laugh as well was in Yafat Koto said to De Niro, you get 10 years for impersonating an FBI agent. And he looks and shoots right back. Well, how come they haven't arrested you yet? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think everybody acquits themselves well in that. I did notice, I've forgotten the, the one, his arch rival. It's also one of the cops in Beverly Hills Cops, so obviously he and yes. Martin Brest must have got on. If you like Danny Elfman's score and that, you should check out stuff by his band Oingo Boingo, which is pretty much of that ilk. In fact, I think it's Oingo Boingo playing the closing track on the soundtrack. Yeah, the music is very good. It is very 80s, but it does drive the film along rightly. So it does, it does complement it very well. So yeah, it was a good recommendation. I enjoyed watching that. Well, I, I enjoyed watching your... Uh, recommendation so take it away Dan I was going to say I hope you did enjoy watching mine um, so... <laughs> well I, I had some quibbles but I, I, I feel it's fair you know just to let you uh, let you make your recommendation well well, dear boy it yes. wouldn't be it wouldn't be a podcast if you didn't have to quibble about something though would it yeah, right my my recommendation is the 2008 film Vantage Point which is a political action thriller it's set in Spain in Salamanca and what happens is the U.S. president, played by William Hurt, Henry Ashton, turns up in Salamanca as part of a conference to negotiate about terrorism. So the mayor takes him to the, the plaza, introduces him, and then he probably gets shot. And then there are a couple of explosions outside the plaza, and then the rostrum, oh, sorry, the podium, explodes as well, killing uh, and injuring numerous people. And this is all seen from the, the perspective of a TV crew. The director's uh, Sigourney Weaver, and Sui Saldana is the reporter on the ground, Angie, 
she wants to present the alternative side because there are people protesting the president's arrival, but she's told just to kind of get with the program and not concentrate on the sideshow. So whenever the explosion happens and it kills Angie, then the pictures rewind and then it shows the same sequence again from another perspective. And then it does the same again from another perspective. It does the Secret Service agent, the president, the tourist, the local policeman. And gradually, bit by bit, you get to see what is really happening. So obviously, each time you see a bit more, um, it changes what you've seen before or it expands a bit. But it also asks another question. For example, when you're looking at it from the view of the Secret Service agent, Thomas Barnes, played by Dennis Quaid, he sees something. And then it's like the reaction on his face, the screen goes to white and the pictures rewind and it goes to somebody else. So it's like at the end of each one, it asks another question. And eventually, then the questions get answered. I don't want to go too much into the plot because, in fact, because it shows the same thing so many times, the action is basically taking place over, over the course of what probably amounts to an hour, really, because it's the same 20 minutes is shown again. The film only runs for under 90 minutes. So it's not actually a long series of time. So I know I'm kind of summarizing the plot, but there isn't actually that much plot to it. Simply to say, like in the film Rashomon, and it's, this is a process known as the Rashomon effect, you see the same event from different perspectives and then gradually you find out a bit more that maybe what you saw isn't what you saw or it's not the full story. And then, of course, eventually the plot is revealed at that point, the film kind of descends into your slightly generic action thriller where the big chase scene through the streets, which is it was well filmed, to be honest with you, but it does become a bit formulaic and it, there are certain moments of unrealism, which I'm sure Steve's going to touch on and certainly I will come to as well. But it's up until that point, it is an interesting experiment in filmmaking by telling the story from different perspectives. Dennis Quaid is the Secret Service agent. Zoe Saldana is the reporter on the ground. Scorny Weaver is the director. William Hart is the president. Edgar Ramirez plays the local cop, Javier. There are enough interesting twists in it to keep you going, to keep you guessing as to did you really see what you thought you saw? One of the interesting things is on the Blu-ray that there is this thing called the kind of GPS tracker. And what it is, this little thing that sits along the bottom of the screen and it shows the position of each character. And every so often, a scene from another part of the film will pop up in relation to what you're showing, seeing, and will show you where other characters are. So unfortunately, it is kind of spoilery that. So if you do buy the Blu-ray, watch the film first all the way through. And then if you're still struggling as to who's where at what time, this thing will help you point out, oh yeah, they were doing that at the same time that that was happening. So for example, Whenever a bomb goes off, you can see where people were at a certain time. Um, you know, there are multiple explosions go off, who caused them, that kind of thing. Those are questions that are asked by the movie and then later answered in a kind of roundabout way. And in the end, all the pieces fit together and there's a few little twists in it. A few kind of things were resolved a bit too quickly for my liking, like people just ended up getting shot. And that was the end of that question. A few plot lines I thought were tied up a bit too neatly, but it's good. To, it was good to see Dennis Quaid back again. I think it had been a while since he'd done anything of note. Um, Matthew Fox, who I only knew from Lost, it was good to see him try something else. Forrest Whitaker. I mean, we've talked about Forrest in Taken Three and how he goes a bit to method for his own good, and I'm sure Steve, you're going to touch on that. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed it, and I think it's it did very well. It didn't compare well to Rashomon, but then Rashomon kind of at the time, this is the Akira Kurosawa film, Rashomon, which told 
a story from multiple perspectives to get the viewer to question the possibility of truth. And of course, when you start imitating that, you're going to get compared to that and vantage point comes off unfavorably towards that. But it did do well. It made 151 million on a 40 million budget. It's a fun watch, a bit like Devil in our previous podcast. Kind of in previous years, this probably would have been a double feature given the brevity of it. And it's not very original, but well-told story which is possibly why critics were so hard on it. But I, I enjoyed it. Just as, it was one that I came across just by accident. I think it was because I'd liked Matthew, Matthew Fox in Lost, so I watched it from his perspective. So I knew very little about it. I just bought the DVD and watched it and thought, this is great. It's not going to go down as an action classic, but I think if you want something that keeps you guessing for a while, you know, it'll keep you engrossed. Sigourney Weaver wasn't the original cast member. Pete Travis, the director, decided he wanted the film to have a strong female. So that's why she's called Rex in the film. Forrest Whitaker wasn't originally cast. He, the character Howard Lewis was originally an overweight Eastern European. But when he expressed interest then Travis welcomed the chance to work with him and rewrote the character to suit him. It was actually filmed in Mexico City and the cast underwent a lot of scenes to play Secret Service agents. Now, in terms of unrealistic ones, one of the things that got me thinking, I'm sure the Secret Service would not do that. One of the agents is chasing one of the characters and it's a crowded street and they're running and they're on foot and there's loads of people nearby and he's shooting down the street at them. And you just think there's no way that anybody would put so many bystanders at risk with doing that. So that was the only thing I thought, really? Would that be happening with so many people running about with a Secret Service agent just open fire with their pistol and hope that they could hit their target while they were running? I suppose one of the things you do have to do with this film is kind of suspend your disbelief, really, if I'm honest. There are a few things in it where you'll sit and think, now, would that really happen? But that's the movies for you, really. And there's not really much else I want to say about it, because I think if I go into too much, I'll just spoil the plot. It's just a nice, tight little thriller, which will keep you hopefully keep you guessing for the runtime and a few little twists and it's the thing it's an interesting experiment in filmmaking and if you like what it does then you should go and check out the original Rashomon which may well feature in a future edition of Fire by Low Bright, um, if you like films that do that kind of thing. I, I must admit I, I definitely enjoyed it then, and I definitely felt it was time well spent uh, that seems an apt choice. I didn't realise that Rashomon was an influence, but that makes sense now because it, it has got quite highbrow pretensions, you know, because it's not real time, it's, it's actually replayed time. But with kind of a modern twist, because it feels very much like a few things that were definitely in vogue at the time, like 24, or even Lost, in a way, went over the same thing again and again. But if, it, if I had a gripe about it, is that, I mean, you know going in that an action film's going to be a bit over the top, and I'm, sh I'm sure that there's things in, in Midnight Room that would never actually happen in real life. But after a while, I, I started to count. You start with, like, mm, that's a bit over the top, and then after a while, you, when they start to mount... I'll give you a few. Did you find that the scene where the president's in the hotel and the hitman goes in, and he's just got a, a silenced pistol, and he seems to take out endless people with this pistol uh he never misses he never has to reload and i think there's one scene in particular where he takes out three secret service agents in a corridor and some of the agents are practically running into his bullets they're not diving for cover or anything 
And that's yes. when I start to think, like, these these guys are supposed to be trained. They would seek cover. They would, you know, they, they'd go to a good vantage point where they can get a good shot on him. And it seemed like they were just, you know, like German soldiers in some of those old World War II movies where they just almost run into the bullets. Yeah. Well, the character you're referring to is ex-Special Forces, so he would have that training and possibly be able to do that. But, yes, I see what you did there with vantage point. Very good. There was a bit of running towards your target and running into the line of fire. Um, whether that's Secret Service training, I don't know. But yes, it did seem a bit kind of, let's just throw myself in front of the bullet. What was your next <laughs> criticism? I suspect that's that's only the first. Well, when I first watched it, I didn't like Forrest Whitaker's performance. I thought it, he, he kind of jarred me just as he did in Taken Free. But I didn't realise that that character had been written as, did you say Polish? Eastern European. Eastern European originally. And, and then when he expressed an interest, they decided to rewrite it for him. And I was just like, oh, well, that's... That's interesting. I mean, it was just, he kind of jarred me because obviously he's always got the camera in his hand. Yeah. And I'm prepared to forgive the fact that Forrest Whitaker is obviously a bit heavy set, so he can't run that fast in, in, in one crucial chase scene. It jarred me at the time, but now I'm kind of like, oh, just give it up, Steve. I think the, the one bit that I just was just like, get out of town, was when William Hurt, as the president, is in the hotel room and his advisors, the, the way they speak to him, they're demanding he orders an air force strike on this terrorist camp in a friendly country, Morocco. And they're like, you've got five seconds to decide. We want this, we want this strike now. And I'm just like, oh, come on. If I talk to my boss like that, I'd get the sack. This guy's the president of the United States. And he's right. You don't just attack a, an allied nation and, and violate its sovereignty just because there's a terrorist camp there. You, but then I kind of let... <laughs> I love that line for all the wrong reasons where his advice is like, Mr. President, we have to act strong. And he's like, we don't have to act strong. We have to be strong. I was just like, uh, I'm going to put that on my sharing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that is, yes, that is one of the classic lines. One of the questions on IMDb is, um, is William Hart's president based on George W. Bush? <laughs> because, mm. you, because you get the impression maybe George W. Bush's advisors spoke to him like that. Possibly. I don't know. Well, yeah, and now that you mention that makes a lot more sense because, yeah, Bush was such a mocked figure that it did feel like he was a puppet maybe for Cheney and, and them. So maybe at the, when it came out that those scenes would have played a bit better. But yeah. it's, it's been a few, I'd almost forgotten about the Bush years. Maybe, maybe I deliberately chose to, but I think those scenes probably would have played a bit better at the time. They, they seem a bit jarring now. Like Taken 3, I think you do need to suspend disbelief in terms of people's physical ability. Like Dennis Quaid being able to run after a speeding car. Mm. When he's only car. just recovered from his last gunshots, right? They're all surprised yeah, that's right. back at work. Yeah. Yes. That's the other thing as well. Because it's so brief and it's only got so much time to tell the thing, it does really introduce a lot of things really quickly. Like, for example, the TV crew see this guy at the same time that we meet him and then suddenly there's a backstory and they're trying to scrabble to find a backstory and we're thinking, what's the backstory? And it all happens. So there are some kind of blink on you'll miss it things like the Dennis Quaid character has previously been shot working for this president. I think it might be one of his first days back or something. So again, you're not quite sure of his mental state of mind. So there's the unreliable narrator thing comes in as well. Can we trust what we're seeing through Dennis Quaid's eyes? Yeah. Or is he kind of having a, an awful flashback to what happened before? One of the critiques as well was that uh, I read was that the when his car gets hit by that truck with such force, his airbags should have deployed and they didn't. 
foreign cars what can i say <laughs> <laughs> i didn't notice that so much I, one thing i did think at the time is because whitaker's got this camera yeah. And he's looking at Quaid, who seems a bit suspicious. And he's like, what's he looking at? And then he looks up at that window where the curtains are kind of going back and forth. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, there's something wrong with that window. And I'm just like, hang on a minute, you're a tourist. Why are you? The fact that Forrester Whitaker could figure that out so quickly struck me as unbelievable. But you know what? I didn't know it was filmed in Mexico City. I, I just assumed they went to Salamanca. And now I'm thinking that that square they're in, if that's Mexico City, that must be the same square that we see in the Day of the Dead sequence in Spectre. Okay. I'm sure with the kind of helicopter fight and the, when the helicopter starts to uh, lose power and starts to fall towards the square, that came out in this, I think it was the Sony leaks that um, the studios really wanted to film that on the back lot. And Barbara Broccoli was like, no, this is a Bond film. If we tell the audience it's Mexico City, we're going to Mexico City. Right. Um, well, yes. Uh, wasn't that the, the whole selling point of the Bond films, certainly in the Connery and Moore eras, for people who couldn't afford foreign travel, that if Bond is meant to be in this place, then Bond really is in this place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've read since that Day of the Dead wasn't actually that big in Mexico City. Uh, maybe it's it bigger in other parts of Latin America, but it's become big now because of Spectre. <laughs> well, because they hope a helicopter will fall on them. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. So I've, I've certainly been like that in certain, <laughs> certain holidays. I'm like, get me out of here. <laughs> what else has the director done? Obviously, it's, it's not... One thing that's good about it, it's not really geared towards sequels, is it? So we no. don't have to sit for another five of them. Well, uh, according to Wikipedia, in December 2020, it was announced that NBC was in the development stages of a TV series based on the film. Oh, so let's have a look at this. That would be Barry Levy, the writer again, and the producer again. I haven't heard anything since that, but it just goes to show you can't keep a good film down. This was in Deadline. It reported that they're developing it. Mind you, they were meant to be developing a TV series based on source code, and instead they rebooted Quantum Leap. So who knows? It might get developed, but in a different way. Pete Travis, he hasn't done much. Barry Levy has written a few, he's working in television. Pete Travis did the TV movie about Oma, which is what really made his name. He also... Well, he's listed as director on Dread. Now, if you read into the background of the movie, Alex Garland, kind of, Pete was shut out of the movie at some point, and Alex Garland completed it. So it's uh, some debate as to who actually directed it. Carl Urban, the actor who played Dread, said that he was directed by Alex Garland. So there's a kind of pretty much a Richard Donner, Richard Lester, Superman 2 thing going on there, I think. And since that, he has gone into television, directed things like Marie Antoinette, he did a couple of episodes of Bloodlands, the James Nesbitt thing. Vantage Point was his first big studio movie, and obviously it did quite well for him. Just thinking of that example you brought up, did you know that Martin Brust had worked on War Games? I didn't know he'd worked on War Games. And it was interesting that he wanted to make it a more standard political thriller as opposed to the kind of... I suppose you can't really have a political thriller if you've got two young teenage leads. That's fresh, from the, fresh from the John Hughes school of teenage films, um, Matthew <laughs> yeah. Broderick and Ali Sheedy. Um, you can't yeah. really, yeah, you can't really do mature stuff with them. I don't know, maybe it would have worked if it was slightly more serious, but I mean, as a film, I, I like it, and John Badham does a good job with it. But yeah. it would have been interesting to see where Martin Brass would have taken it. I suspect he might have made it into another failsafe or something, mm. which would have been no bad thing. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Because, I mean, Matthew Broderick must have been really young, because this is pre-Ferris Buller. Yeah. Bueller, I should say. Bueller. Yeah. Bueller. Bueller. 
Bueller. Yeah, I could go on for ages just doing Bueller, couldn't I? Um, Bueller, so I'll stop. Um, yeah, so that would be, it would have been interesting to see what, I mean, if he only did 12 days worth of stuff, then that's probably not enough to justify a Martin Brest cut like there like was with Superman 2 and Richard Donner. Yeah, I think this is where his slightly difficult uh, reputation came in because apparently he did all the pre-production work on Rain Man as well. Oh, did he? Okay. Yes, and at the last minute, um, Barry Levinson took over. And I don't know if that was amicable or or another case of kind of clash of egos. And when you think about it, maybe Sense of the Woman is, is kind of like Rain Man. You know, it's the kind of young guy, friends of a disabled or eccentric older man, and it's a, a kind of bittersweet journeyman film of them together. But, uh, you know, like I say, I'd, I'd watch another Martin Brass film if he ever came back, if they ever trusted him. Let's have a little look and see what's the latest in Martin Brest. Oh, well, that's it. There's nothing. No, there's nothing in pre-production. There's nothing even remotely. I don't think there's any even rumours. But, I mean, I'd love to be proved wrong. He is friends with... I think he's taught. He's turned to teaching. And he's friends with a lot of directors who... Younger directors who are quite hot right now, like Paul Thomas Anderson, who is a big fan of his personally and professionally. So that might be a way back, just as Tarantino has produced some Lazarus-like resurrections of uh, fading movie stars. I wonder if a younger kind of invoke director could give Martin Brass a job. That would be interesting. It would be. Just looking at what we were saying about Rain Man, um, apparently he says here, yes, that he bailed when production was due to start due to creative differences. That old chestnut. Steven Spielberg stepped in, but then left after a few months. And then Sidney Pollock stepped in, who left. And it was wow. so the project didn't have a director until Barry Levinson signed on. So it wasn't straight from Brest to Levinson. It was you had Spielberg and Pollock. So you wonder what on earth was going on in that production. I mean, it turned out well, and if yeah. if I had to choose between the two, I would choose Rain Man over um, Scent of a Woman, if I'm honest. Yeah. But, you know, it's, so whatever troubled that production, it didn't make it onto the screen, thankfully. And same with Midnight Run, apart from that, Gaffer Coco being caught off guard and that making it into the film. I'm sure he was <laughs> delighted when he saw that. But... Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, God rest his soul, he, he died a few years ago, but I remember, because he retired quite young, Yafet Koto, or, or maybe 60-ish or something, and I remember he'd pop up at fan conventions, and, you know, he had a fantastic career, because, you know, Live and Let Die, and Alien, and Brubaker, and Across 110th Street, loads of great films, but if someone oh. asked him about Midnight Run, he'd be like, oh... And I think he said, I was shocked that that film turned out to be so much fun because it was an absolute nightmare to make. It was the absolute opposite of fun. <laughs> but the, but the, I, I, I like that. One thing I can't stand is comedies where it, it think you, you see that the two leads or, or whatever clearly think the material is hilarious and they're having a good time. I'd rather, I'd rather the actors are suffering so that we can have a good time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> suffering for their art, dear boy. Yeah. Um, Yes, but so we may, he might have had more fun talking about Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare, than he would have done about Midnight Run from the sound of it, because he was in Freddy's. Right. Yes, uh, uh, it was uh, that might have been at the tail end of his career. I'm guessing. Well, yes, probably. I mean, I thought they've got Yafit Koto, the man who played in all these well-known movies, and they've got him in the final, well, the penultimate, as it turned out, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh well, I suppose everybody has to make a dollar, or they think they might think, yes, this is a well-running franchise. This is, you know, this will be brilliant. It'll be wonderful, and yeah, it's not. But anyway, yeah. but I just thought, imagine if you had a choice between answering questions on Midnight Run or Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. 
Well, I mean, he became very eccentric, Yafa uh, Koto, because he he claimed to have been descended from Queen Victoria, and he was living in the Philippines for a while with his third wife. He claimed to have seen UFOs and and stuff, and you're not quite sure if he was joking or if he meant all of this stuff. So apparently, he was quite happy to talk about the UFOs he's seen. He just wouldn't talk about Midnight Run. But I think spaceships is the one is the one form of travel that uh, De Niro and Grodin don't take in the film. Oh yeah, that's what they do. Everything I see them do like a little biplane, don't they? At one point, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, dear listeners, we hope you've enjoyed these two classic films. Uh, one was a classic road movie; the other, uh, a highly enjoyable film about viewpoints. Uh, so, do take the time to discover Midnight Run and Vantage Point if you haven't already seen them, and we'd love to hear your point of view about them. Okay, we've had great fun talking to you, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.